Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. I am sorry to be a broken record about this, but if this is the first chapter you're hearing, I urge you to pause the story, go back to the main menu of whatever podcast platform you're using, and start again from the very beginning. Just trust me on this one. Thanks a million. Now, off we go. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 12, The Dating Game. Societies in which women have lots of autonomy and authority tend to be decidedly male-friendly, relaxed, tolerant, and plenty sexy. Got that, fellas? If you're unhappy at the amount of sexual opportunity in your life, don't blame the women. Instead, make sure they have equal access to power, wealth, and status. Then watch what happens. Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha from Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships. Arriving in Legrand late the next night, finding my way to Harriet Jean's house, and collapsing wearily onto my thermarest and sleeping bag felt like a profound symbol of both an ending and a beginning. It felt like my spirit's calendar had flipped an invisible page. Upon waking the next morning, Harriet made incomparable spiced coffee with cayenne and cocoa. We sat on her front porch, smoked hand-rolled cigarettes, and talked and talked and talked. Porchgasm! Can you believe it's still September? I asked her breathlessly. William and I split at the end of July, so all these crazy adventures have been squeezed into three little months. Less, even. Oh my, she said. I mean, of course I can believe it, because that's how time is. But you're right, you've been going through it. Harriet, of all people, knew that warping time was real. William used to say that the only clock in Harriet Jean's house was a poem tacked on the fridge about bending time. As Harriet Jean and I sipped and smoked and opined, I realized with something of a shock how high my sexual appetite was. Perhaps I had been so focused on attending to my spirit's needs during my, ahem, spiritual road trip that now my body was reminding me it was hungry. Makes sense to me, Harriet confirmed. We finished our coffee, Harriet Jean got ready for work, and I reached out to my collection of lovers. All of them were unavailable or uninterested, so I hopped onto one of my favorite user-friendly dating apps instead. Meeting new partners is a mutual interviewing process, and it is the responsibility of each party to perpetually check in with their own internal mechanisms to ask, does this feel right? Does this feel balanced? It is each party's job to do so every step of the way, and it is each party's job to engage or disengage with the other party accordingly. Does that make sense? Are you with me? That it is my job to ceaselessly check in with my heart and gut and instincts, and it is his job to constantly check in with those same mechanisms within him? If something inside me says, no thanks, I'll pass, I love and respect myself enough to listen— no matter how deep into the relationship I ventured. If his heart or gut or instincts take a pass on me, I love and respect myself enough to accept his rejection. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm just saying, come on. Every healthy relationship between two people takes two yeses, but just one no. 
sure, once you've invested some serious time in a relationship, there's going to be a natural, healthy level of conflict, and it's up to you to decide how much of that feels balanced. No one else can tell you what's reasonable to you or how much effort you should invest in addressing it and when it gets so big or frequent that it's time to disengage entirely. But the bottom line is that you are under no obligation ever, ever, ever to continue to engage with a person who you do not want to engage with. It doesn't matter if you were together for five years or five minutes. doesn't matter if the law says that you're committing a crime or if, if people, you know, shun you. It's, it's your right. It's your right. It's your right. Disengaging doesn't mean you wasted the time you've already spent together, and it doesn't mean you were wrong to have chosen that guy in the first place. Just in case you were tempted to think so. Back at Harriet's, I matched with, messaged, and arranged dates with four separate men. And wouldn't you know it, they all happened to be available on the same day toward the end of the week, which meant I had four dates in a row on the same day. I emotionally composed myself, knowing that the constant self-check-in, the ceaseless questioning, does this feel right, does this feel balanced, would be energetically expensive, especially four times in a row. And I also knew that I still wanted to go on all four dates, because the possibility of having my sexual appetite fed was in balance with the energy it would cost me to find a lover. The day of the dates approached, and the first man cancelled. I was relieved. Three dates were plenty. The second fellow texted shortly before we were scheduled to meet. So I just got some crazy news, he said. Oh, great, I thought, girding myself for another cancellation. I just found out I'm being transferred to the East Coast in 30 days, he continued. Oh, so not another cancellation. Not exactly, anyway. I would understand if you didn't want to meet me anymore. I'm in a pretty weird headspace, to be honest. He explained he wasn't in the mood to go out for a drink, as was our original plan, and apologized. I think I'm just going to go home and smoke a joint, he said. You're welcome to join me, but no pressure. I mean, I'll be gone in a month, apparently. I understood that his imminent professional transfer changed his life dramatically, but it didn't change my sexual needs at all, and therefore didn't change my mind about wanting to meet him. Additionally, I actually preferred the effects of cannabis to the effects of alcohol, so the new plan was an improvement in my mind. Wouldn't you know it, we already had something in common. Which is not to say that smoking weed was a threshold need of mine. I wouldn't jump ship if a partner wasn't into it. But this guy chose a joint over a drink, and I was down with that. When I got to the fellow's apartment, I recognized two things immediately. One, his place was scrubbed and tidy, which I found to be a serious turn-on. And two, he was, in no uncertain terms, quite short. I immediately recalled what Chloe had told me about great lovers in unconventional packages. Just stay open, she had advised, knowing that my goddess chakra had only recently woken up and that I could actually use some advice. Sometimes great partners are older than you'd think, or fatter or whatever, she said. At the time, I recoiled. Ew, I thought, I want Prince Charming. She must have seen me wince because she added, I feel you. Just remember those tall, dark, and handsome guys can be the worst lovers because girls are willing to put up with their bullshit. 
It's the ones who aren't drop-dead gorgeous who have to work a little harder. And in my experience, they're the ones who really know how to please a lady. I mulled it over, and she concluded on the same note she'd started with. Just stay open, she advised. So there I was in the immaculately kept apartment of a very short man who liked to smoke weed and who'd be moving away in a month, and I was hearing Chloe's voice in my ears. Okay, I thought. I'll be open. The short man's name was Jack, so I came to know him in my head as Little Jack. Our conversational rapport was easy, and after smoking a joint, we smoked a cigarette. At the time, I saw these habits to be perfectly compatible. Great, I thought. He won't give me a hard time for my social smoking habit. He told me about finding his way to Legrand through his work as a manager at a small cell phone company. I told him about my open-hearted divorce and spiritual road trip. He told me that even after living in the area for a year, he still didn't feel like he had a place in the community. I couldn't believe it. When I'd moved to Legrand in 2013, I was so warmly welcomed by those who already lived here that I adored any opportunity to pay such kindness forward. I invited Little Jack to see some of my favorite places in Legrand the next day, sure that we could broaden his social network if only for the short amount of time he had left, and he signed on enthusiastically. As we talked, Little Jack was still clearly reeling from the news of his upcoming move. I was happy to listen to his thoughts and feelings about it, and I got to add my two cents and advice when it felt appropriate. I'm really glad you're here, he confessed. I would have never guessed, you know, that having company would be helpful at a moment like this, but I'm sure I wouldn't have laughed as much if I'd been alone. Well, look at him, expressing gratitude verbally, and showing a willingness to let the laughter in. I liked the little dude, and I felt at ease around him. It was somewhat disappointing, therefore, when the time came to politely excuse myself and attend my next date. I knew I'd see Little Jack soon, and I considered it bad manners to cancel an engagement so close to its scheduled start time. Little Jack and I hugged as we parted, and it was positively electric. Our hearts glowed together. It felt like two little stars merging into one. For real. The third date was scheduled to take place at the university field with a fellow named Danny. He was a firefighter visiting town on duty with his crew, but he lived a few hours away in his off-duty months. Close enough if we hit it off, I reasoned. We had agreed to meet at the track so I could, quote, kick his ass in a foot race. The race didn't go quite according to plan. That is, he won. But the sunset was spectacular, and the premise of the date was satisfyingly creative. We had a playful, physical energy, all the way from the track to the restaurant. I like to play a naughty little game when I went on dates in town. Legrand was a small place, after all, and people liked to gossip. I imagined that the people who knew me, or knew of me, were whispering to their friends or partners about how many men they'd seen me out with. I imagined them secretly agreeing what a slut I was. I imagined that underneath their meanness, they were jealous of my sexual exploits and wished they could be one of my lovers. Ha! Behold! The power of the imagination. It didn't matter to me one hoot if my fantasy lined up with reality. The fantasy served me, turned me on, and didn't hurt anybody. It was my mind, and I could do with it as I pleased. As the hostess brought us to our table, I invited Danny to sit beside me instead of across the table. 
It's so intimate, I hinted. It's way better than sitting so far apart, don't you think? Danny agreed and joined me. As we were seated, he scanned the room and froze up. What's the matter, I asked. So this is wild. My ex-girlfriend, I mean, if you even want to call her a girlfriend, is over there by the window. But I thought you were just traveling through for fire, I said, surprised. He was an out-of-towner, and I assumed his friends and lovers lived elsewhere, too. I am, he said. I have no idea what she's doing here. Well, I'm not bothered by it, I said. I hope you're not either. It actually kind of turns me on. She gets to see you with this new goddess. You get to spend time with a goddess. I get to be a goddess. So in the end, we all win. He laughed and put his hand on my thigh. What if after dinner we went back to my hotel room? He suggested. After dinner, I have another date, I said. I leaned close to his ear and whispered, You knew this. You could always cancel, he suggested, moving his hand higher up my leg. I could, you're right, I said, seriously considering it. But that's bad form. I wouldn't want someone to cancel on me with such short notice. But I'll tell you what, I'll text you later if I'm free. You'd be free if you canceled, he repeated. No means no, I said firmly, but with a smile. After dinner, I texted guy number four to say I was running about 30 minutes late, and he wrote back to say that was fine. So I'll talk to you later, Danny hinted. If you're lucky, I teased, kissing him on the cheek. I headed to the bar where I was supposed to meet the last man of the evening. En route, number four called to let me know he was feeling unusually tired and was already walking home. I asked if I could give him a ride. He accepted, and our date lasted as long as the trip. As soon as he got in the car, I knew I wasn't attracted to him. I apologized for being behind schedule, but told him I understood the state of exhaustion. He asked if I wanted to meet later in the week, and I, as politely but as honestly as I could, turned him down. I texted Danny and asked if his offer was still on. He texted me the address and room number of his hotel. Humans have made all kinds of preposterous rules to try to refute the fact that sex feels so good and that consensual sex isn't hurting anybody. But we should know by now that we are free to accept or reject the rules imposed by others. As long as we aren't hurting anyone in said rejection, of course. Your right to swing a bat really does end at my nose. I wanted to get laid, and Danny seemed like a promising lover. I was wrong. <laughs> I've been careful not to disparage the men I've slept with, especially for qualities that are unable to be changed, like natural endowment, for example. But I want to point out that there are some general, universal guidelines that you must follow if you want to be a good lover. While it's still true that what turns me on is probably different than what turns you on, and that neither of us are wrong, even if we would be wrong for each other, it is also true that no adequate lover shows blatant disregard for their partner's pleasure. The best lovers, in the heterosexual arrangement I was used to anyway, ensure a woman comes first. But I understood that sex was organic and could wander off script. As such, if a man comes first, it's still his duty to bring his partner to orgasm. Do you hear me, fellas? Sex feels as good to us as it does to you, if not 19 times better, when it's good. And it's your job to ensure its goodness for us, as it is our job to ensure its goodness for you. Everybody wins. We just have to work together. And I beg you not to make false assumptions about the diminished female libido when her lack of interest is clearly in direct relationship with your disinterest in pleasing her. 
Danny didn't live by the mutual pleasure rule, and he started getting dressed as soon as he'd climaxed. So that's it? I asked. Well, I might be in town tomorrow, still depending on what this fire does. I'd be down for round two. (laughs) I bet you would, I said. You obviously enjoyed yourself. You didn't? He asked, and he seemed genuinely confused. I mean, I started, you sort of left me hanging. Oh, he chuckled. Yeah, well, sorry, I guess that happens sometimes. Women and their elusive orgasms. Oi, he was clearly telling himself a story that absolved him of any responsibility in the matter. It wasn't his lack of sexual skill or attention that was the problem. No, no, it was the nature of female sexuality. I considered pleasing myself before I left, because I was pretty worked up but I decided that getting the fuck out of there was what I really wanted to do. I was physically and emotionally dismayed. Danny and I had had such a flirtatious rapport. How could it have all gone so wrong once our clothes were off? Why is it that sexual manners aren't something everyone just learns, I wondered as I got dressed. Maybe I'll write a sex ed book. Ding, said the universe. Bye, Danny, I said as I walked out the door. Thanks for the evening, but you should know you're a terrible lover. I went back to Harriet's and laughed. What else was there to do? I wasn't resentful of Danny or committed to some narrative indicating I'd fucked up in some way. My life, as always, wasn't supposed to be any different than it was, even if I hadn't eaten the meal I'd set out to eat. I wasn't mad at myself for sleeping with a man on our first date, nor mad at him for being bad in bed. He obviously never learned, I thought, conceding that most of us are merely victims of the system we've been raised within. The societal problems of sexual shyness has inevitably bred a society full of sexual nincompoops. The evening provided a data point, and all data points are useful. If anything, I was thankful to be able to cross Danny off the list and put my full attention on my upcoming day date with Little Jack. The next day, I took Little Jack to some of my favorite places in town. There was the jackpot of a thrift store, where the employees always remembered your name and where you couldn't help but walk away with at least one treasure— There was Fitzgerald Flowers, a family-owned botanical heaven that also stocked stylish jewelry, quality chocolate, organic baby clothes, and elegant kitchen accoutrements. There was the Legrand Dry Cleaning, run by my vocally liberal soul friend, Gabriella, who'd hung an enormous sign in her shop window after the events in Charlottesville that read something like, The president will not denounce white supremacists, therefore he supports white supremacy. If you support the president, you support white supremacy, and your business isn't welcome here. Bold move for a red county. As we bounced around glorious Legrand, I loved noticing the way Little Jack looked at me. I loved that he used his words to tell me how dynamic our parting hug had been the day before. And I especially loved that he asked, without jealousy in his voice, how my other dates had gone. As Little Jack and I got to know each other, I could feel the seeds of our spiritual compatibility taking root. Maybe his truth declared itself in a different dialect than mine, but he didn't act fearful or skeptical of my constant preaching. He was an empathetic listener, and I liked it. Spiritual compatibility? Check. Social compatibility? Check. There was only one important box left. That I knew of. That afternoon, in Little Jack's well-kept apartment, I flopped down on his bed, exhausted from a long day of one-on-one community building. He joined me, and we held each other. We must have kissed, I suppose. 
tangled in each other's limbs, and fully clothed, I said, I wish we had some sort of magical tether we could wrap around us. I already feel enchanted. I don't have a magical tether, he said, looking sly, but I do have a nylon cord. I perked up immediately. Tie me up, I ordered. He looked at me sideways. Have you ever been tied up before? Well, sort of. I mean, haven't we all? I mean, who cares if I have or haven't? I only say things I mean, I said, so tie me up. I'm only asking, he said, because there are some safety guidelines you should know before we start. He left the room to retrieve the cord. When he returned, he recommended I take my shirt off, as it would be hard to do once bound. I complied. As he tied my wrists, he showed me that he could slip two fingers between my skin and the cord. Once my arms were immobilized, more or less, he began kissing my body. The sensations were simultaneously familiar and novel— Of course I'd felt a lover's mouth move over my skin, but I'd always been able to twist slightly or use my hands to guide him here or there. Now I was, more or less, entirely at his mercy, and the power dynamic was intoxicating. At one point, when I was using the wall behind me to bend my legs back and playfully avoid him, Little Jack pushed the whole bed abruptly with both of us on it away from the wall. I went limp with ecstatic submission. That afternoon's tryst rocked my world. Evie Wallace and the wonderful, magical, so good, very great sex. When Little Jack and I emerged from the fog of passion, we looked at the clock. It had been four hours since I'd first flopped down on his bed. I knew I could warp time, but I'd never warped it like that before. I didn't know, and I didn't care what title our relationship might take— We were clearly compatible in the important ways, or so I thought, and I wanted to spend as much time with him as possible before he moved 3,000 miles away. As you may recall, the entire month was not at our disposal. My trip to England was coming up, which meant I would actually have less than a week with little Jack before he left for a training across the state. He wouldn't be back in Le Grand before I jetted off to Europe, and we would pass each other in the air as I returned from London and he moved to New Hampshire. Little Jack and I agreed that we wanted to be together as much as possible in the next few days. As Little Jack and I lay post-coital and untied, I told him I'd have my kiddos throughout the weekend. Harriet Jean's house wasn't exactly kid-friendly, so William and I continued to use the quaint cobalt craftsman as the kid house. I asked Little Jack if, with William's approval, he would be interested in joining me for a weekend-long slumber party. No pressure, I said. I mean, it's okay if you weren't into hanging out with my children. Are you kidding? He responded. Your kids are part of you. I can't wait to meet them. So I asked William if he would be comfortable with me hosting a lover. I was already committed to the idea of not hiding lovers from my children. Once a partner had been vetted, I didn't feel compelled to hide his presence from my kids. Scooting my lovers out the door before my children saw them would have sent the message that sexuality was in some way shameful, and I wasn't into that. Do you see the difference, dear reader and listener? between this healthy approach to sexuality versus an unhealthy approach. I wasn't including my children in my sex life. I was having private, adult, consensual sex in the same house where my children existed, just as married people have private, adult, consensual sex in the same house where their children exist. But aren't you worried about the revolving door thing? My friend Kate once asked. No, I said, and I meant it. 
Do I avoid introducing my kids to the friendly barista that I've developed an informal social connection with because I'm afraid they'll never see the barista again or that they may meet a different barista another day? Do I worry that introducing them to their long-distance cousins, who they may not see for ages or ever, is somehow traumatic to them? Of course not. I'm showing them that our village is made up of friends, cousins, baristas, professors, the folks at the post office, and also lovers. I'm showing them that the more loving, connected relationships we build, the better our lives are. These were my opinions, but the fact of the matter was that I would be staying under William's roof and would therefore need his permission to have an overnight guest. I assumed William had hosted his own lovers, which didn't bother me because I trusted him, and by extension, I trusted the people he chose to bring home. My request to have little Jack spend the night was really a matter of courtesy, and I would have been surprised if William denied me. Of course, William said, and that was that. It felt good to know that our trust was mutual and that we were handling ourselves so decently. Divorce done right. That's how we do. Little Jack came over Friday evening and met my boys. He was interactive and whimsical with them, and they clearly enjoyed him too. When eight o'clock rolled around, Little Jack cleaned the kitchen while I bathed the kids and tucked them into bed. Afterward, I spent a rowdy night in my bedroom with my impressive new lover. The next morning, Saturday, I made bacon waffles, you heard me, and fresh coconut whipped cream for the four of us. We planned to indulge in brunch, then stroll down to the farmer's market. Little Jack entertained my kids while I cooked, and the multitude of internal frazzled wires that used to electrocute me microscopically when domesticity was my primary burden were now unplugged and uninflamed. This was my life now. I was spending a morning with my kids and lover under the same roof where my marriage had met its maker. The dam had burst. The scales had tipped. The river was flowing its natural course. We shared a meal, our hearts were warm, and life was good. Later that day, I reached out to my Aunt Julia. I hadn't heard from her since the big ask, and I assumed her silence was a big no. Still, I wanted to hear it officially. Julia let me down gently. That was okay. I didn't take her rejection personally, nor did I interpret that rejection to mean that I was somehow mistaken to have made the offer. Look, sweetie, she said warmly, you may think we have a lot of money, but we don't have a bank account lying around with that much in it. This seems strange to me. What's the point of having a billion dollars if you don't have some of it in the bank? She probably just means she doesn't have that much in an account that she wants to share with you, my rational brain reminded me. Maybe you can ask your mom for help, she suggested, and I withheld a snort. I'm sorry, I wish you all the best, but I think you've got a lot to learn about business plans, she concluded. And she was right. I had a lot to learn about a lot of things. Julia wasn't a hater, I knew. Not really. She was a pragmatic realist who loved me, even if she couldn't lend me a few hundred thousand dollars. Okay, I thought, that particular door has closed. Which one is going to open instead?